and I shouted to her, sorry, and I looked up, but she was already on his way, on his way down. And she was twisted and turning, coming down from seven, eight hundred foot. The uh, bird was about six inches from the floor, realising it was in dead trouble. And it got to the bottom of the scree, and it was flinging itself against a big rock to get in. And she was about ten foot on the ground, off the ground, still head first. Turned over, stretched a big foot out, and just plucked it up in one foot. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Toll Podcast and what is now our fourth episode of our UK Falconry series. And, of course, I'm going to give a quick shout-out to the two guys that helped make this series possible, being Neil Davies from Pursuit Falconry and Conservation Magazine. Pursuit Falconry Magazine does a great job in promoting the art of falconry across the world and... Each issue is packed with all kinds of new falconry content, ranging from articles to pictures, different kinds of artwork, equipment, etc., etc. So if you haven't subscribed yet, I highly recommend you do it. Head to PursuitFalconry.co.uk and subscribe now. And the other shout-out goes to the author of The Specialist Falcon, being Simon Tires. Simon wrote this book to kind of outline his personal approach to lowland game hawking and it's a great book about flying long wings especially specialized long wings in the uk but there's a lot of great information in there and a very entertaining book to read so if you haven't picked up a copy i highly recommend you also going to thespecialistfalcon.com and picking up your copy now and you can also get signed copies too from there so definitely head there and check it out and this episode features Ronnie Moore, who is a pretty well-known, long-tenured falconer in the UK. And Ronnie is one of the few falconers that I've been able to talk to who has the good fortune to be able to say that he flew the same bird for a very long time, which you'll hear more about shortly. But Ronnie is also a new author and has a new book coming out soon, which will be discussed more here shortly, too. And just so you know, in the first eight episodes or so of this series, you might hear some occasional background noise like you might hear at the beginning of this episode. There are row crows and drones and other things being flown at the expo and different events going on that you might hear some background bleed-in noise, but not too big of a deal, but I just wanted to make you aware. But at any rate, I'm going to go ahead and turn things over now to my conversation with Ronnie Moore. I think you'll find this one pretty entertaining, so here we go. All right, Ronnie. Well, it's good meeting you, and I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and, and uh, you know, sore throat and all, and, and, you know, give me a little bit of your time here. How's things, uh, how things been for you so far today? Oh, ground. Nice to, nice to see some of the lads. Uh, I haven't seen some of them for over 40 years. 40? Over 40 years. Jeez, which ones are those? Roy Lupton. Uh, I haven't seen Roy for over 40 years. And the, the nice thing about falconry as, as it was when I, I came into it and obviously still into it. I haven't seen Roy for, it is over 40 years. And he'd heard I lost a migoso, passed away with aspergillosis. Uh, and I got a message from him saying, I've heard you lost your goss. Very, very sorry. Uh, he said, it's through you that my interest in golden eagles flourished. And I have a male gossip here for you, captive bred, untouched. Then it's yours if you want it. Now, that's what I think sets this game apart from a lot of other field sports. 
I've been involved in various field sports over my career, field trialling, retrievers, shooting, fishing, which I still do, a uh, bit of running dogs, wild fowling, but something about falconry, there's something about it, if, if it's for you. I got into it because I'd done a lot of picking up on big commercial shoots, despite an awful lot of game. And at the finish, I couldn't look a hen pheasant in the eye when I had to dispatch it to prick pheasant. And I wanted to still be involved in the countryside. And I'd heard about falconry and thought, well, there it's basically one-to-one. If the quarry's good enough, it gets away. If it isn't, it, nature will take its course. And once I got into it, made some really good friends. You've met a few around here. The, the last one you met, Andy Kenyon, I first met Andy in 1976. So, and that, again, is an awful long time ago. <laughs> it is. That's impressive. I can only hope, well, <laughs> I guess I jokingly say this, I guess for some of my friends, I hope I don't <laughs> have to deal with them for that long, but... <laughs> well, if you have, they won't be friends. <laughs> yeah. Simple as. Yeah. Simple as. Yeah. But I've been... Falconry's given me everything. Yeah. It's given me respect. It's given me so much pleasure and the interaction between the hunted and the hunter. And it's basic nature. It's basic nature to me. And nature will take its course. Sometimes you give it a bit of a hand, but usually the best flights usually are the ones where the quarry gets away mm-hmm. and it outwits the hunter. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've dined with lords and ladies. I've been on access to some of the best shoots in this country all through falconry and birds of prey. And in my book, I'm financially poor, <laughs> but I'm friends rich. And I won't have it any other way. There's a lot of guys that are like that. I've talked to several guys that have that same mentality. You know, they they value the the relationships and the experiences way more than any kind of monetary amount they've ever made or well haven't made in a a lot of their cases and and yeah they they uh know that they're not wealthy in the the pocketbook but they're but they're wealthy in all the other aspects of their life well i've certainly been lucky it's an old saying and it particularly to me relates to falconry because you, you can get like in any sport one or two save unsavory characters and any new falconer that's come and asked me for advice or will, I, will you show me this and will you that, I will. I'll get to know them and I'll just give them one piece of advice and that's if you lay down with dogs, you'll pick up fleas. <laughs> Stay clean. Yeah, that's a good piece of advice. Yeah, yeah. That's, um, I think there's a lot to be said for that because, I mean, there's so much, there's so much worry and, I mean, I guess rightfully so that our sport and our heritage is going to eventually be looked at in um, an overwhelmingly negative light. And that's, that's why we like doing these podcasts and things so that people can listen and, and get a good idea of the, all the positive things about our sport and, uh, you know, this, this heritage that we've come to, to love and, and it's opened up so many opportunities for us. So. Well, I can imagine when I came into it, there was in this country, there was very much them and us. Mm. There was, the, shall we say, the grouse hawking hierarchy <laughs> and the scrag ends, such as people like me. But luckily, you are uh, judged on your hawk and your dog's performance in the field. 
not how much money you've got or what sort of car you drive. And mm-hmm. um, to me, that's how it should be. Sure. That's how it should be. Mm-hmm. And we all learn. Nobody was born a falconer. Nobody knows everything. Mm-hmm. You can always learn something from every single person here, probably. Mm-hmm. But you, you have to, as you go through, you're gathering experience and you're gathering knowledge. You don't know you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And I can remember seeing somebody out in the field a couple of years ago thinking, what on earth has he done that for? <laughs> and then I thought to myself, well, I used to do that. <laughs> and that is how you learn. And yeah. this game, you learn by your mistakes. And if you get it wrong, the mistakes are very, very, very costly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why people that tend to repeat them, they don't succeed or stay in for very long. Well, Again, hopping back to the good old days, call it what you want, and I'm not <laughs> looking back with rose-coloured glasses. If you were lucky enough to get a hook, you got one chance. Mm-hmm. You couldn't say, oh, this isn't for me, I'll get another one, now let's see what's in the catalogues. You got one chance, mm-hmm. and you have to make it. Mm-hmm. And to me, a mate of mine said to me once, you don't bend a hook to what you want, to your will. You try and make yourself to work with that hook and do it its way, but yet still do the things that you want to do together. And they're like a human being. No two people are the same. No two hooks are the same. And it's knowing what perhaps not to do with one and perhaps what to try with another. I, my, the hook I really, really cherish more than anything was my Golden Eagle. And we built up a hunting partnership. There was, I'd like to think, I would never take liberties with her and I would not uh, expect her to take liberties with me. And we came to a working, I know it sounds funny, it's not a person, it's a hook, but we came to a working agreement. And it it worked on my side anyway. Unfortunately, you can't ask her because she she sadly passed away a few years ago at the age of 30. 30? 30. You had the same, same golden eagle for 30 years. Yes. And I flew her every single season. It's incredible. That's keeping any species for any longer than a handful of years sometimes can be can be a, a a huge challenge, especially if you're hawking them every day and and hunting them like you're supposed to. And I mean that's incredible. Well, I I used to hunt mine like a wild one would from from the saw. Mm-hmm. I didn't hunt it off the fist. I wanted to see because what a wild one could do under. semi-trained conditions and when she eventually decided that she would work with with me sorry she let me into her world Uh and I'm eternally grateful for the years I had look at it this way I started hunting her when I was 34 and I was still hunting her when I was 62 (laughs) wow that's absolutely nuts think of all the years past 28 years in your life and how your life changed and think about it that way yeah well like i said as we discussed earlier uh you know 20 something years ago i was still in a (laughs) (laughs) elementary slash you know grade school and and in the early days (laughs) we had no telemetry nothing Mm -hmm. well when you've got a golden eagle at two and a half thousand foot with no telemetry, and it can go anywhere it wants, but it chooses to stay with you. 
That's, You've done something right. Yeah, I mean, once again, I can't I can't say it enough. I that's that's incredible because even yeah, especially not having GPS and all the you know, even <laughs> even 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 beeping telemetry or anything, you know, for so many of those years. I mean, did you ever get the newer technology when it came no, available or no i'm i rent i'm still using or was still using one of your american lads called don boundowski him and frank taylor yeah. uh-huh. and a couple of other lads came over about ni- 1986 uh-huh. and i'd organized a meet a grouse hawking meeting i heard they were at the air in the area and i rang the uh, owner of the estate up and he said, invite your friends. So that made the party up. Went, it was two days. You got, they fed us both days. Uh, and they were wonderful sporting hosts. And I asked, because he lived, it was, it was the telemetry everybody wanted in those days was custom. And the, the, there's a blue box called an RB4. Well, prior to that, I had a homemade set with a, a wooden aerial with, with wires coming out of it. And the preamped Motorola radio, which was two big six volt batteries linked up to make twelve volt. It was push button, and it weighed nine and a half pound. <laughs> and I used to carry that round all the time. After I didn't once, and I had to go back to the car for it. So I carried it around all the time. And I asked Don Bandowski, I said, "Have you got any pull at customs?" I said, "Why?" I said, "Well, <laughs> any chance of a discount?" <laughs> so he got back to me. And he said, uh, can't, can't get you any discount. He said, they worked, a lot of work. He said, we can't even get you delivery for six weeks, two months. He said, but would you be interested in a second-hand unit? I said, as long as it worked, yeah. He said, well, one of my apprentices is packing in. I've lent it him. I'll get it back. About a week later, I got a phone call from him. He said, right, there's a parcel for you down at your local post office. He said, uh, you might have a little bit of duty to pay. And so I said, what do I owe you? He said, you owe me nothing. And he sent me a customs RB4 set, a aerial to match it, a, what they called a three-stage transmitter. In those days, you'd an normal one aerial coming out full length and then you'd a little short stubby aerial called a ground aerial. And that was called a three-stage transmitter. And you put two 1.5 batteries in it. And when I opened the parcel... There was the receiver, there was the aerial, there was a three-stage transmitter and a pair of bald eagle braces to keep my trousers up while I'm out looking looking for the eagle. (laughs) That's falconry. Uh That's falconers. And I still use that set today. Still do it? Still. In fact, I've lent it to a friend that is here, like called Professor Mark Fielder. Hmm. And he's got it. And he's using it now. Well, that also goes a lot to saying how much more durable and and higher quality a lot of some of the older products could be too they were made to last <laughs> well a, a very dear friend who we lost earlier this year called peter wool probably the clumsiest man you ever come across in your life <laughs> he's dropped his three times in the river run over it twice with his car and it still worked Jeez. and it still worked know, hats off to custom electronics pretty much all the newer normal appliances as you know are pretty much built it seems to break down after like five years or something so (laughs) everything from your washers and dryers to you know so i mean if you can have that one little bit of reliability in that aspect of your life that's supposed to bring you happiness and joy (laughs) a custom set never ever let me down the only thing with it if you got really close 
and you had like I had a really really good male gossip once, very very successful, but <laughs> didn't want to be found if he <laughs> caught something. Mm-hmm. And you could be in very thick cover, you could be within two or three yards of it, and he'd just freeze on his kill. And <laughs> what you did then is unclip the aerial and just walk round mm-hmm. with the box till you got a bead on it. Apart from that, direction perfect. You haven't got the range of the uh, of the modern stuff. In fact, Simon Tyres, who was telling me when I stopped with him two or three weeks ago, with the GPS, you can even see what tree it's sat in, mm-hmm. basically what branch. Just to have a signal was was an event. Uh, the early time of telemetry that came out, a friend of mine, another past falcon, a very famous falconer called John Fairclough, he got a set, one of the early made-up homemade ones, and he spent two hours in the pouring rain tracking an electric fence with it. <laughs> and then yeah. till he got his customs. Well, he ended up getting a Luxander set, a little Luxander set. But when you've got no telemetry... Your, your senses, you got back to being a primeval animal. You look, listen for little birds pinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd watch for corvids dipping. Mm-hmm. You'd watch for an odd movement of a gull. Yep. And they were your distance locators. And I, when you were looking for a hawk sometimes without telemetry, I was one after one that somebody cut off my perch. You could, I could have written a thesis for a PhD on corvid behaviour. <laughs> they don't all mob it. They don't all follow it. The spotters, there's ones that mob it and mix in with those, there's today's dinner, the gobless ones that just wander about on the floor. Mm. And you learn an awful lot about wild bird behaviour. Mm. And that's, that's what I think, the only thing really you have missed with telemetry is, is picking nature's signs up when there is a predator in the area. I've still had to use those signs before, even even with GPS and stuff. I mean, and just because you get a really accurate pinpoint doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to see the bird right away or or whatever. You know, I mean, so it's always nice knowing those age old, you know, traditional methods because they're just as useful as everything well, else. A few years ago, we got a phone call, garbled message on the answer phone. It was Christmas Eve. And this lad now lives in Canada, like called Mark Williams. He's quite well known in the Falconry game, now he's Mark. And he lived in Bournemouth. And the message turned out to be he had a gossoak in the garage that had injured its leg, free lofted. His wife had come home, forgot about the gossoak, opened the garage door. And at half past five on a Christmas Eve, it was out, gone. All he had on was one bell. <laughs> so he rang me up. What's your chances of finding that in a town, the edge of it, or towards the edge of a town? I said, where's your nearest water? He said, well, there is a stream. This is God's honest truth, not one word made up, down off the main artillery road. So I said, we'll go down there. This is get to half past six, Christmas Eve. I said, stop. I said, I said, I've heard a bell. I can't hear anything. I said, stand there. Tinkle, tinkle, <laughs> I can hear it. And there was no leaf on the tree, it was a deciduous tree, and there it was, sat in the tree. What's your chances? <laughs> this is when you look, with looking for a bird, goes with you. So I said, right, we'll leave it there till morning. We went out in the morning, it had gone, and it went, there's a big hospital there now, Bournemouth Hospital, and behind that is the retired nurses' quarters, and there's 
magpies chattering all over the place. And he said, it's got to be over there. All those magpies are over there. And then we went and never saw it. Nothing. And then we, I just heard one magpie make a funny noise. And he said, all those are over there. It's got to be over there. There's half a dozen of them there. I said, just let me check this out, will you? And I peeped through the hedge, and there it was <laughs> on the floor. So as I moved in towards it, I spooked it. It took off, crashed into the bottom glass of the woman's door, was laid on its back. He burst into tears. He thought it was dead. And you know how emotional you get when you're all you're looking and then you get, and he thought it was dead. I said, well, it isn't, but I thought it was. But I picked it up, opened my shirt and stuffed it inside my shirt. I said, it's not going to bloody die here. It's not going to die, you know. I'm thinking it was. <laughs> and as we're walking across the field, I suddenly stopped. He said, what's to do? I said, I'll tell you something. He said, well, I said, it's not dead. It had both its feet <laughs> right into my stomach. I said, I'm not, I'm not taking it out of you. We'll, we'll get back to the house. We took it in the garage, took it out, put it on there. Christmas morning, I was back home for half past eight. That's when you ride your luck. Mm. What is the chances of that? Only because I'd heard a magpie make an odd noise. You have to use the resources that are at your disposal at any given time. And sometimes if you're fortunate enough, yeah, it'll be something like a, a bird noise or... Well, the first wild peregrine I ever saw in this country was 1979. And I was flying my golden eagle up in the Yorkshire Dales and it was waiting on. And next minute I heard, kek, 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 kek. I didn't <laughs> know what it was. And then I looked up. And it was a peregrine's tassel stooping at the eagle. It stooped at her two, three times. And each time she, she side shuffled and it went past her. And it came down again. And she obviously lost a rag with it, turned on her back and showed it at her feet. Next minute, the peregrine tassel was off with the eagle in hot pursuit. <laughs> and the eagle was closing on it and went into the wind way out of my sight. So no telemetry. So I started off thinking, that's it, it's gone. After 10 minutes, I saw this white stuff blowing back downwind towards me. I thought, Christ almighty, my <laughs> first peregrine in the wild. And she's killed it. But it, luckily it wasn't. It was fur, the underbelly fur of a rabbit that she'd killed. But the interesting thing to me was, she didn't mind it when it came out. But when she lost a rag and she turned on her back and showed it her feet... That bloody peregrine knew that means business. Mm -hmm. Now, how did that know? <laughs> this is the interaction you get between wildlife. And with falconry, you just get an insight into the natural world around you. That's what I think. It's fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Oh, for sure. Well, I mean, so was it just that interaction in general then, or was there a even more specific incident that kind of, turned you on to the sport or, or really just it, it, it was a lot of it as well was the camaraderie there was no facebook then there was no snide comments and people <laughs> trying to stab somebody else in the back we were all in the same boat and if one lad's hope was out we were all out looking for it there was no you're on your own kid i'm stopping in bed we were all out and i was grouse hawking once in scotland i i would as I've said earlier, I'm financially poor. I was always somebody's guest. <laughs> and uh, 
if a, if a falcon was out, we're all, we were all out at night. And the thing was, when you got it back, the person whose falcon it was usually treated everybody that had been out to a slap-up meal at a very, very expensive restaurant. <laughs> and I was always worrying that if my hawk was out, I'd have to do that. Luckily, it wasn't. But at the finish, when you'd lived on a, on a croft at the edge of a moor and hadn't eaten particularly well, you were perhaps thinking it back of your mind. I hope so-and-so's falcon gets out tonight, because if it does, we'll get a bloody decent meal tomorrow. <laughs> but it, it was the whole camaraderie of the game. Yeah. And uh, you stick with friends. Most of the people I come across then were through the British Falconers Club, because that then, a club was the only way that you met other falconers. There was nobody else down the pub. There was you. And it was at club meetings that you met other falconers. You soon know, like any human being, you know whether you're on the same wavelength with somebody. And if you're not, well, they don't bother you. You don't bother them. But what you have to be in my book all your life is you have to be you. Don't try to be something you're not, because it'll backfire. Even when you're in the biggest big house, with a big estate, just be yourself. Just be, and people will accept you. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah, I mean, I just, it's all I ever expect people to is just, just be real. You know, just don't try and be fake or, you know, just something you're not. Yeah, just as, as long as as long as long you're real. and I don't get any pleasure in looking at hawks and falcons on the blocks. Mm. They don't, I don't look at it. Oh, Christ, what a gorgeous. I like to see it working. Yeah. That's where the real beauty is. It is to me. Yeah. It is to me. A, a friend of mine was saying to another very, very good falcon of this country, like called Alistair McKissick, he was up in Scotland, saying, oh, a beautiful falcon, you know, a beautiful falcon always performs wonderfully, Alistair said. Not in my book. He said, I had the ugliest, bloody misshaped falcon he said you've ever seen in your life, but it was the best falcon I ever had. <laughs> and you, you can see with a falcon, John Fairclough, Simon was handed them. Was, there was one called Jet and one called Jade, and they were, brother, they were two sisters out of the same litter, same year. And on, on, on the fist, Jet was always, when she fed, she was always off balance and pulling the bloody food and leveling her wings out to try and level it up. And Jade... Always fed delicately, always had balance. And when they flew, Jade had that bit of something that Jet didn't. Jet probably will never have made it if it was a wild falcon. That was two sisters raised the same. One was on, but they both looked the same. They both looked beautiful. But yet the other one had poise and balance. And the other one was as clumsy as buggery. I've flown some birds that really weren't that great to look at. But, you know, I've also had some birds and known some other guys that have had birds that really just weren't the biggest or the most ideal specimens or whatever, but they were some of the best hunters. So I, I understand what you're saying in that regard. We, we were always very limited. The only way you could then get a golden eagle, shall we say, mm. was take from the wild a licensed bird. There was no captive breeding, no, none or almost no captive breeding of goshawks and certainly not falcons. So the only way you could get your hands on a gosso was an import license. Uh, usually they, they were coming, started off from Finland, I think, and then Czechoslovakia, Hungary. Everybody wanted the Finnish hawks mm -hmm. because, as usual, big is beautiful, as all they say. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, I, my ideal gosso, I flew gosso for 45 years without a break. 
And my ideal gossort would have been a male gossort that probably hunted about 115, something like that. Mm-hmm. That would be me. It had, the, it had the agility of a male and yet big enough so you're not stretching it much on rabbits. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was lucky to get my hands on a really, really good male way back in 77. I swapped a passage female for it because he he had a, a male, he didn't like males. He said, all they're good for is water ends. Mm. And I had a female, a passage female, which he wanted. So I swapped it unseen. And I took it out four days later on an estate. The woodcock got up. It went off to that woodcock. Didn't catch it without telemetry. It took us about an hour to find it. Any sensible falconer would have gone home. <laughs> but I got it back and I this, I went on this shoot, on shoot day, so I knew which way the birds would fly. So I, I positioned everybody out on the track at the bottom. I went to the top with the goss, flushed a hen pheasant. This was last week in January. Off went the goss, disappeared into the... Wild blue yonder, I thought, how stupid can you get? <laughs> Come back down, the keeper was there. I said, oh, so did you see out of it? He said, I've never seen anything like it in my life. He said, there was a hen pheasant flying across the valley, which then, it was a, a driven shoot, so it would have been 40 yards up, something like that. He said, and all of a sudden, there was this grey blur that came underneath it, and, and they come whistling down, crashed into those roadies over there. That's when I realised... I had a prize on my hands, <laughs> and I had. And he was probably the best all-around gossip male I've ever seen. I've seen better on rabbits than better on partridge, but not an all-around goss like he was. I was lucky. I got it unseen. That's your luck. That's your luck. And he was he was very, very independent. Uh, you could, if, if he missed... You could do what you want. You wouldn't get him back till he'd clear the wood out. He'd hunt the wood completely out. And once he found out there's nothing in there, he'd work his way back to you and come straight down. Mm-hmm. So that's what I give him. I give him his head. I could have flown him tighter. But you wouldn't have seen what he could do. Yeah. Oh, that's understandable. But I mean, so you did fly several other species then before you flew your, your golden eagle then? I, I flew my golden eagle probably earlier than I should have done. <laughs> uh, but I flew, I started off a buzzard, a European buzzard, and I wanted to fly it like wild buzzards fly, not chuck it in a tree, beat round it, don't catch anything with it, and then go on to a goss. And I flew it like a wild one flew. I flew it on the sewer like a wild one flew. And I struggled to get a kill with it. And I thought when I thought my uh, my day had come, I put it up. It was soaring away about 300 foot. I was working the dog. Next minute, I see it turn over and stoop. I heard it crash down into the heather and its feet were going. And I thought, I've actually done it. <laughs> I got up there, shouted to my dog to lie down. I got up there, the dog was laid down. The buzzard was about 20 yards away, mantling in the heather. I thought, I'd better get in quick and dispatch it. And it was a big piece of sheep wool. <laughs> the dog had obviously dislodged it with its nose. It went rolling backwards downwind over the heather. And the buzzard came down and took it. 
I went from, as in falconry, in anything in falconry, one minute you're at the top of Everest, next minute you're at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. And that's how it goes. Uh, but it taught me a lot. And it taught me a lot about wind and about what a, what a broadwing or an eagle needs to get lift. And a lot of it, unless you're involved with it, you don't understand it. I was out with a keeper after Blue Airs, and there was a big, we call it a gill hole, it was like a little valley, and it was about 35 yards wide. And on the other side of that valley was a blue hare sat there. And the keeper couldn't understand why the eagle couldn't just fly straight across that valley and have a go at it. This is what goes up must come down, and you had a downdraft and a depression. And the eagle would just, just sat there on the side of me, watching, and then as the wind started to lift... She'd lift off, and then she'd go sideways up and down the valley trying to get higher, and then come back and land again. So we just sat there and watched, and then eventually she got high, and she could get over the depression. <laughs> just as it got over there, the hair dived into a ditch, and we lost sight of it. <laughs> but that taught me again about lift and conditions. And I was flying on an estate once, and one of the guests... The landowner's guest, he was chief test pilot for British Aerospace. And his name, funnily enough, was called David Eagles. <laughs> and he used to fly gliders as well. And I, he was watching her. She was up, she'd been way up there for at least an hour. And he was watching through the binoculars. And I said, what do you think of it, Mr. Eagles? He said, what that Eagles just done is aerodynamically impossible. <laughs> I said, well, perhaps the good Lord is a better designer of aircraft than British Aerospace has. He was watching what she did with the primaries and her tail and how she was moving her tail feathers. And then you watch and this is what you pick up. And I could go on a shoot and they'd, they'd, they'd plan this drive. I said, it won't work. Why won't it work? I said, because the wind's coming over the top of that hill and there's a downdraft. Your pheasants won't get up. Well, we'll see about that. <laughs> and of course, they didn't. Yeah. And this is what this is another branch of falconry. What I did where I flew the eagle, you can't do it anymore. There's too many people about. I flew on ground where there wasn't a soul. Now in Scotland, where you've got the open spaces to fly blue hares, you can't hunt blue hares anymore. That's finished. Yeah. Uh, sadly, whether it'll come back, I don't know. But getting to your question, I flew. Started off with buzzard. I didn't get a kill, but I hacked it back. And I was out one day, I got my first gossip. I was working this patch of cover, and then suddenly the goss looked up. And the buzzard that I'd hacked back months earlier came and landed in a tree at the side of me. I thought, well, I can't slip the goss. So the dog was marking a, a, a duck which I thought was a duck. When I put it into flush, it was a water, what we call a water hen, this little black, black bird. The goss baited at it. Out came, out of the tree came the buzzard and took the water in. I <laughs> never had a kill with intactivity. She took one in front of me when she'd been back in the wild six months. <laughs> and the farmer told me he'd seen it take rats, half-grown rabbits. I'd seen it take a water hen. That pleased me more than you can ever imagine, that she went back there. And she could earn a living on her own bat. So then I flew her. Then I got my first goss, which was a passage female. Then I got I swapped that for this male who I flew him for. 
nine seasons, something like that. And then he got killed in a breeding aviary. And then another mate of mine very kindly gave me a female. And I've had, I've had my share over the years. I've never sold one. And I've always flown them for 45 years. And then me and my other half had a blazing row because I took the goss out and I shouldn't have taken it out. It was blowing a gale, had bad cataracts. Once the goss had gone 60 yards, I couldn't see it. Mm. And the uh, only way I knew, I just, <laughs> just let the dog hunt and see if the dog marked it if it killed or mm -hmm. I'd swing a lure around and it would come back. And this particular time, it mounted into the wind and killed over the top of some cliffs. And uh, I went out the morning after it had killed. And it, she buzzed the lure, but she wouldn't come in. And then it landed on some cliffs, and I put my life at risk trying to climb the cliffs to get it back, and I didn't. And my other half said, you're not having another. <laughs> so we agreed that the finish, I'd have one last one. Mm. And then whatever happens, that would have been it. And I thought it would have took me into my 80s, but it didn't. It got aspergillosis. So I packed in two years ago at the grand old age of them. was it, 70, 76, 77. Mm. And miss it greatly. But the quarry's gone. We got VHD, a rabbit disease. The rabbits have gone. The last three times I was out with a goss, I didn't get a slip. And I thought... Perhaps it is the right time. Yeah, and that's that's like the worst thing that can happen with a with a goshawk too is to right, right. is, is yeah. to is to not show it game. <laughs> and your your spaniel's working its guts out, yeah. trying to produce fire and it can't. But all the time, the main my main thing was the golden eagle. Yeah. And given given everything on its merits, everything perfect, perfect weather conditions, perfect wind. Perfect supplier quarry in my book. There is absolutely nothing to touch a golden eagle when it's hunting properly. They are the most amazing creature. I saw it. We were on hunting a rock screen, a howling gale, and she was way above me. I saw a flash of grey at the side of me, which I thought was a rabbit. So my call when quarry was shouted was hair hair. I shouted hair hair. Then I looked down. And she was twisted and turning, coming down from seven, eight hundred foot. The uh, bird was about six inches from the floor, realizing it was in dead trouble. And it got to the bottom of the scree and it was flinging itself against a big rock to get in. And she was about 10 foot on the ground, off the ground, still head first, turned over, stretched a big foot out and just plucked it up in one foot <laughs> and landed with it. Now, wow. A female golden eagle in a howling gale. What sort of agility have you got to do that? Yeah, I mean that's that's why we I think fall in love with with these birds like we do is because they do so many amazing things that I think we wish that we could. Those are some pretty amazing stories. I'm sure that you've got hundreds, thousands of them or whatever. But well, without plugging anything, <laughs> over the years I've been oined. Oined, I don't know what oined means. It's a, it's a usually a Northern England expression, people have been badgering me <laughs> to put everything down on paper. <laughs> so I actually did. Mm -hmm. And seemingly I did 147,799 words in one long paragraph on a 10-year-old iPad. And when that broke down, an iPhone. <laughs> and my mate... 
my intelligent late friend, I would send him a chapter that was in one long paragraph and he would put it into uh, paragraphs and sentences. And Bob Dalton, who you know, has got that wonderful lugger project. Mm-hmm. He's very kindly doing all the layout for me. He's had it proofread, all, all for nothing. And any book that is sold, a, a donation from every, every copy will go to his lugger project. I haven't done it to make any money. All I wanted to do was do it because he actually said to me, not only should you do it, it's your duty to do it. Because when you go, that will go with you. And that's why it was done. All I wanted was to write it down and sort a few copies to give me mates. <laughs> but if it does make a bob or two, I won't turn it down. <laughs> but that's why it was done. So it's all, it's all, most of it's down. So that was my career. I did grouse oak for the end of 20 years. Started off trying to catch grouse with a second-hand passage lanner. Knocked two down, didn't kill. Then somebody wanted a prairie female. Uh, They wanted it manning and flying before it went in a breeding aviary. And all I can say about a prairie is I'm glad it's a good job they don't weigh 10 pounds because you'd be in trouble with them. They've got beaks like tin openers. When they baited off, they didn't bait off in fear, they baited off in anger. And if you put your finger anywhere near it, it'll have half your finger off. A friend of mine got a hybrid and he was telling me about it. He had killed the grouse and it was a beautiful September afternoon. He was in his shirt sleeves. It was sat aside with the grouse, watching it plume the grouse, enjoying life. And he said it suddenly stopped, left the grouse, walked over to him, walked up to his arm, bit a lump out of his arm, turned around and walked back to the grouse again. <laughs> and I said... That's the prayer, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and then I was very kindly given a uh, peregrine tassel, and I flew peregrine say, for a grouse hawk for about 20 years. I was had pointers. But the mainstay throughout my falconry career was my Elsa, my golden eagle. It's a wealthy history. I'm glad that you decided to put everything down on, on paper, though, and now I'm glad that you decided to, to put a voice to it as well. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it, that's the only downside, and I was telling a... Uh, I was telling Bob and um, a couple of the other guys this earlier that that's that's the only thing that makes me sad a little bit is knowing in this venture that as many of these falconers as I want to get the pleasure to know a little mm-hmm. bit and record and make conversations available for the better part of the world to listen to. The, the bummer is that there's going to be some people that don't want to do it and don't think it's for them. And, and I totally understand. But at the same time, it's just like I feel like there's there's going to be a lot of conversations and, and stuff that, that, and a lot of knowledge that's not well, unfortunately going to be able to be passed on from that. But. Well, it was Bob actually that, that did give me the, re, the, the proper kick because he said, <laughs> not only should you, it's your bloody duty <laughs> to do it. Mm. So it's, it's his fault. <laughs> it's his fault basically, but it's done. It's, it's finished now. It's out of it. One of the, the things that got me, and this only happened about four years ago, and I'd flown goshawks then for 40-odd years. And the last goshawk I got, it was unseen. I saw it on the internet, and the other one I'd, I'd just lost. And I got it home, and I it wouldn't do anything. It would not do anything. It wasn't interested. It was an ayus. Somebody else had had it. I'd, God knows what they'd done to it. I don't know. <laughs> but it just wasn't. And you, once it had finished feeding, 
It didn't want to know you. And at six weeks, usually I got them flying free and, and, through and hunting it's again to three. And I kept going up there. Time it had finished its food, I would put it back on its screen. Then it would look at me and shriek and bait away. And I'd come back down and Val Miller all said, then he'd joy. I said, no. I said, tell you what, this is now middle of October. I said, if I can get it flying free for end of season, which is the end of January, <laughs> I'll consider myself I've done a good job. She <laughs> said, you're joking. I said, I'm not. Then one day I went up there. I'm feeding it, I'm walking toward its screen perch, and it's just finishing off its food. And it lifted, it turned its head and lifted <laughs> its head up to me and looked at me. And then put it put down and then started picking the little bits off my glove. That was what I'd been waiting for. Mm -hmm. 30 years earlier, I wouldn't have known what that meant. Yeah. It took all, perhaps I'm a slow learner, mm. but it took all <laughs> that time to realize, right. She's now accepted you. Mm -hmm. Within a week, it was away. But only experience can teach you that. And honestly, it's I, I think we sometimes forget that something can can be you know, some some of these birds can just be that stubborn. Number one, but that intelligent. Well, and sometimes, yeah, some of these birds they just and the look in its but birds are <laughs> hawks are like humans. Mm -hmm. Look in their eyes. Yeah. And I, it, it's eye, its demeanor, its eyes changed. It, it just looked, turned sideways, went down like that, and then started just picking those little mm -hmm. bits off your glove. And I thought, ah, I was so proud <laughs> that I'd actually got a reaction. <laughs> and then we romped on. After that, we romped on. And so usually when you get the side eye like that from a goshawk, it usually means <laughs> something else. <laughs> First chance I'm off, kid. <laughs> For sure. Well... Real quick, I mean, before we uh, finish up here, I, I kind of want to get your perspective because you were around back when you could get birds from the wild and, and stuff here. I mean, I, what, what's kind of been your perspective and the change from the way things were and then the way they are well, now? And First of all, we couldn't trap them. You could get, get a license to take one from the nest. Couldn't, you, there's no trapping. Uh, just just there's, an IS. There's no, there's no, just, yeah. yeah. Gotcha. You need to apply... There was the, 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 what they called, there was the golden eagle and the merlin uh, and the peregrine. And usually they were only in Scotland where they were supposed to be the main uh, body of them, shall we say. Now I've been involved, I've been to two peregrine iris, legally, I might <laughs> add. Mm -hmm. The first, both birds were taken under licence. Firstly, one licence was granted in England. A friend of mine sorted a site out for the lucky licensee, and I had to go as an observer. There had to be an observer there that was, shall we say, acknowledged by the BTO, British Trust Ornithology, and the government to observe that the rules were being followed to the letter. So that's one IRA I went into. The second IRA, the British Falconers Club, had got a license to take one for captive breeding, and I took that under the British Falconers Club license. What got me was when I went in to the I went to the IRA, it was an abseil down. The parents were screaming their heads off, shrieking <laughs> and screaming. Mm -hmm. There had to be three in the nest. Mm -hmm. You had to take the smallest, which we wanted. Luckily, it was a male because we wanted a male. To make sure that nobody could say we'd fiddled it, we bought a newspaper of the day with the date on of the day and put the three irises mm -hmm. and photographed them on there. 
what struck me about taking one from the wild were those distraught parents. Mm-hmm. And that, I, that was taken 1985, 86. I can still remember that. Somebody once, when, when hybridization came in, you're not going to believe this, but this I can assure you is 100% true. Blood called Lenny and, Dem- Lenny and Diana Derman Walters. Lenny unfortunately passed away, but Diana's still here. And they'd heard that the French Falconry Club had invited Steve Baptiste over to show them how to AI. And they'd realised that the future of obtaining hawks was going to be to AI. They approached the British Falconers Club. They were told that they weren't prepared to put any money forward to get them to show them. One member said, well... AI, it's a captive bred bird, it won't know to hunt. And in fact, even if you could get it to hunt, nobody can fly it because nobody's written a book on how to train one. It sounds absolutely bizarre, <laughs> but it was true. Yeah. My opinion, it would still be nice if somebody does want to take it. There are plenty of falcons, plenty of falcons, they're being knocked on the head. Uh, they're, they're nesting in areas they've never nested before because everything else, all the traditional sites are full up. I can't see a problem taking one, but I wouldn't like to take one again after that, <laughs> after that kerfuffle. Uh, captive goshawks. What I did, what I did find when I'd I'd handled from a, a, a passage birds, which thought my early ones were were all passage and one haggard. The, the captive breads, the F2s possibly, they might not imprint, but they condition very quickly. You know, you can even get one, they, they hear your footsteps going up to the aviary to feed them. Mm. I've flown totally parent reared ice. I've flown crash reared. I've never flown an imprint because I, I don't know how to handle one and I'm not, it's not my scene, mm-hmm. I'm afraid. Leave it to the lads that want to do it. Mm-hmm. They want to do it. What you what you can say in, in the favour of a of an imprint, there is less stress on the hawk, which has got to be, which has got to be good for the hawk. Mm. But if you'd have said, what is it now, fifty years ago, this, <laughs> nobody'd have believed you. Yeah, nobody. Lenny went to America. He went to one. It was, it was stopped with Steve Baptiste, and he said he couldn't believe the weathering ground. If yeah. anybody. When I started, if anybody actually saw an intermute goshawk on the weathering ground, it was an event because <laughs> merely they lost them in the first season because they right. went back to the wild. Mm. Or, a, or a peregrine, everybody would rush over and look at it. Mm. But what Lenny did say when he went to the Naffa Field meeting, he said, you, which was quite a good quote, he said, you set foot on the weathering ground and half the hawks bowed to you. So they were all, all imprints, <laughs> all imprints, yeah. Uh, perhaps I've missed out by not flying an imprint, but I don't think I have. I don't think I have. Yeah, so it's another one of those personal preference things. I mean, to I'm... me, every, in everything in life, there's always they're always trying to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> and whatever you think of, it's all been done. It's all been done before. I'm a traditionalist, but you shouldn't let tradition overrule, overrule common sense. It's like saying, oh, they never used to use telemetry, so I won't. And that's just daft. Yeah. You have to use the technology that's available. Well, that's like, you know, I've, I've talked to other guys before that were 
also traditionalists and stuff, but I asked them the kind of the same question is, I mean, I, if, if it was available, do you not think that like Frederick and a lot of those guys would have loved GPS or whatever? <laughs> I mean, I mean I, I'm, I'm sure that they probably wouldn't have, um, instantly turn their nose up at it. Let's just put it that well, way. <laughs> my mate, the lad that made that beautiful stick, Darren Chadwick, I respect Chaddy's opinion. He's an excellent countryman and he's a first-class falconer, it's Chad. And he was thinking of going into GPS. And there's never been anybody more sceptical as Chaddy and me. <laughs> and he went into it and I said, what do you make of it? And he said, absolutely incredible. You're not wandering around a field with an aerial getting bounced back, mm -hmm. having to triangulate marks. He said, you can just see where it is. Yeah. And when his last one went in a snowstorm and he never got it back, that's when he went for GPS. Basically, I just, so I just looked at what happened to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it has its issues sometimes too, just like everything, but I, I know I'm, I love it. I use it pretty regularly and, uh, there's a lot to be said for, you know, just being able to go and, and drive right to where your bird's at, call it back down if it happens to catch some wind or, or you know, do something that ends up going a mile or two down or whatever instead of having to sit there and, and try and track it, even just traditional ways or beep or whatever. Just being able to drive up, 10 minutes later, you've got your bird back as opposed to just spending the rest of your day potentially just... Just you know. mull this over. You're out there, a gust of wind's caught it, away it goes, and you've got nothing. <laughs> and you've got nothing. Never mind a beep. Mm -hmm. You've got nothing. Yeah. The first time I used that telemetry, it weighed nine and a half pounds with the wooden aerial bit. Was at a field meeting. The gossip went rocketing over the top of a very, very high edge after a cock pheasant. Went to the car, got it, got a beep. By the time I got round the hedge, it had gone. Cut a long story short, I spent two hours going in a complete circle. Never saw the hook, and it was moving. <laughs> At the finish, I uh, I managed to pin it down to an area the size of not much bigger than that van, transit van. Very, very thick, and I, I couldn't believe it was in there. It was that thick I couldn't get the aerial in. So at the finish, I managed to dig a tunnel, got in there, and I just sat there, and I thought, somebody's looking at me. <laughs> and down to my left was the gossip. <laughs> and as soon as it saw me, it tried to go deeper into the cover. And the only reason I know what it was, because apart from one tail feather, it was completely bold, and it was a wood pigeon. <laughs> and he'd flown with it. Every time he landed, he'd plume a bit more, plume a bit more. And by the time all it had left in was one feather. Yeah. Now, without telemetry, he was lost. Well, that's... um. A lot of stuff that I'm glad that you've that you shared with us all today, and I appreciate it. And um, you said this this book that you've written with all these other amazing stories that we haven't heard yeah. yet. You said it's is it already out? It can be bought right now. Not at the moment. Uh, Bob Bob Dalton is very kindly doing the layout. Uh, Still a ways to go yet. Then. Well, he said that hopefully there may be a proof copy out last next week, maybe the week after. Okay. Uh, all I wanted to do was get it off my chest, like I said, and get a free copy for my mates. But <laughs> you, you can, what's, you, if you're going to do it, do it right. It'll sure. be on, it'll be on good paper. It will be a. Uh, if Bob's anything to do with it, 
It's only class. <laughs> Judge for yourself. If the if the if the writing's class, that's up to you. But every single word <laughs> of it is true, <laughs> and it's not just on the field; it's off the field. Well, well what's uh, what's it going to be called then? Well, I wanted to call it <laughs> memoirs. Let me just get this right. This is what I wanted to call it: <laughs> memoirs of a hunting falconer. But Bob said, if you have hunting in it, face blood won't touch it. This is a sign of the times. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, I think it's come down. It's, it's a line from the John Denver song called The Eagle and the Hook. Mm. Have you, do you know the song? I've, uh, yeah, I've heard of it. Well, it, it was yeah. way back written in 1972. Mm -hmm. And it sums up my career with eagles and hooks. I think it's come down on the west wind. And it's memoir seemingly of a master falconer, which I ain't any good at self-publicity. I'd prefer hunting falconer. <laughs> but he said, Facebook won't touch it. And that's your free advertising. Yeah. So I've, I've, I've gone with his advice, really. And where will people be able to pick it up when it comes out? Uh, I don't know. Bob's so, Bob sorted <laughs> all that out. Uh, it, I've got quite a few orders off the lads for signed copies. One way or another, we, we'll get them. We'll get them sorted from them. Uh, See, so this isn't a publicity thing. It's just that I'm not very good at self publicity. Oh, it's it's fine though. I'm but fine. I, I want I want people to be able to to have access to to your other memories and, and well, stories and stuff though. So before you go, before I go this afternoon, I've got a hardback printed rough copy there, so you can have a look at the. Just the bits in it, the chapters, quite funny chapters, I think, really. I think one of them that sticks in my mind is cake and testicles. <laughs> so that's going to make quite a few people stop. Well, I think that's the perfect note to end on. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I mean, like you said, thank you again so much for giving me a, an hour or so of your time here. And, so, um, yeah. It's a pleasure to have met you, sir. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and, if, and if you ever bump into Don Bandowski... Please tell him I'm still using the set, will you? <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs>